Welcome to Scintillations, the podcast where we explore hot takes on the business of branding, consumers, and culture. Each week, we talk to the top minds from businesses shaping tomorrow, cultural thought leaders, and people with an eye out for what's next. Whether you're a marketing professional, entrepreneur, or simply curious about the forces shaping the world of consumer business, we've got you covered. From the latest trends in consumer behavior, to the cutting-edge strategies used by the world's top brands, we'll unpack it all, giving you the insights you'll need to stay ahead of the game. So, join us for scintillating conversations that will help you navigate the ever-changing landscape of modern business, including developments in artificial intelligence tools, like this voiceover. And now, your host, award-winning brand builder, Erica First. Good morning, Kelly. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me, Erica. It's nice to be here. I'm so excited for our talk today, but before we get started, can you please introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about you and what you do? Absolutely. My name is Kelly and I am a development producer for film and TV. I am based in London, but started my career in the US. I began as a development assistant, worked up through development coordinator in the studio system in Los Angeles, and then moved to London about five years ago to go explore working in the international system, finding UK and European voices and stories to help develop um, and produce into television and film that can have resonance uh, around the world. So like I said, I'm based in London now. I'm a freelancer at the moment. Up until about November, I was working on the international film team at Netflix, where I helped develop films across the UK, France, Germany, and the Nordics. And now I'm primarily focused on British film as a freelancer here in London. Oh, awesome. So you have a a pretty good idea of what's going on around the globe in terms of entertainment. I think so. I think so. And that's something that really excites me, especially with all those sort of streaming platforms out there that have access to audiences around the world. We're suddenly able to have, you know, a film that comes out of France, which maybe 10 years ago would have only gotten a theatrical release in France is now being released on a platform in 190 countries and can be seen in Peoria, Illinois, and in India, and in South Korea, and all, all around the world and can find, can find its audiences. And I think that it's, it's a really exciting time for, for story and, and especially for international film and television to, to really make its mark on, a, on the, global, the global landscape. Why do you think it is that, because we've always had subtitles, we've always had dubbing, why now are we, is there more fluidity in terms of uh, what we watch? I know here we're in Italy and one of my favorite shows was a French show. We actually watched it entirely in French just with subtitles and now the Italians are making a version of it. They're making a movie for the United States. Why is there more openness to international titles now? I think the accessibility is the first sort of barrier to to, to overcome. I think that there's, I, I want to believe anyway, that there's always been interest in it. But the accessibility, I think, has opened up the world to realizing that, for example, a French film or a French series isn't, there's far more than what they had previously seen. So before we may have been aware of French films that were 
nominated for an Oscar or had created a big buzz. And, and maybe those are slightly more art house or kind of indie leaning, but actually there's a whole massive like business out there of, of creating really great stories. There's more than just the sort of two films that we hear about coming out of Italy or, and whatnot. And I think the accessibility to that has really opened up audiences to, to, to watching them and to exploring them. I also think we're in a world right now where where people are excited about exploring and 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 moving outside of the sort of boundaries that they once lived in. I'm a massive traveler and I know that I'm not alone in that. So I think people are are moving beyond their kind of home where they came from a, a lot more than they previously could and I think that's a lot to do with the accessibility of, of travel and and how it's become cheaper and easier to do. And I think even beyond just actually traveling, I think there's a curiosity about different places around the world. And, and when you open up this sort of door to that time or place, it opens up even more curiosity about other times and places. And you can sort of dig into dig into all of that and fall down, fall down rabbit holes. To your point about like sort of subtitling and dubbing, I think that like, especially in the last sort of five years, we found that people are much less allergic to subtitles than they maybe previously had had been. And I think that comes from just curiosity about what these stories are. And so they people are more, audiences are more willing to watch things with subtitles or they can have it dubbed if, if they want. I think the dubbing technology is still, it's still in the works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you do, you're starting to get some projects that are doing some like animation of lips when they're dubbing the project so it looks a little bit more natural um, like ai yeah sort of it's it's because it's a bit challenging and you uh, ha, uh, for sort of how to do it i mean it, you're sort of you, you see it originally like sort of deep fakes and things like that where right. you get those politicians that say all sorts of nonsense it's not real but in this case they're trying to use kind of the original actors faces and and um when they can their actual voices to do the dubbing in English language or or whatnot, so I think the dubbing technology is is getting better to make that even even more accessible. Personally, I think you should watch things in their original language because I think there's nothing quite like the original words that the writer wanted to put on screen. I think this is my my father's a linguist, so I come from a family of languages and and how important words are and. And I'm always seeking the exact right word for what I want to say. And I think that writers especially do that. So if you can watch things in their original language, I highly, highly encourage it. So you get the essence of what that writer wanted to say. Yeah. And I, so I, in Italy, they have one of the biggest dubbing industries in the world because it was a leftover rule from fascism mm. everything had to be in a local language so there is a very big industry here for dubbing but like obviously I speak English so when I would go to the movies I was like that's not Robert De Niro's voice <laughs> yeah <laughs> like what and and for them they had never heard Robert De Niro's voice so hearing him speak was weird because they were yeah dubbers so I just always found that really amusing. But are you finding that there's anything in common with the stories that break out of their region? Is there a, a red thread amongst the stories that do well? I think ultimately the thing that is 
universal about every story that is going to capture audiences around the world is going to be the emotion at its core. I think the most interesting stories have are ones that have something to say about the human condition, have something to say about the world. And I think that that is, those are the things that really pop in, in whether it's film, film or television. I mean, in terms of sort of storylines, you can go back to, there's, you know, all sorts of story theorists who will tell you there's only seven, seven storylines around the world. You wrote them all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the hero's journey or, or whatnot. And I think there's some validity to that. But I think for me, certainly when I'm developing projects that I am hoping will have a universal resonance, I always get go down to the emotion and the character. It's that's the thing that I think will stand out and that it has that that universality. When I was working on projects in the Nordics, that's the thing that I was really leaning into. You know, I worked a rom-com that came out earlier this year, which ended up being really a, a female friendship story ultimately. And we were really trying to hone in on what is that relationship between these two women and what is that kind of emotion at its core and what is it that what is it about female friendships and what is it about kind of that that bond that that women have from from quite a young age. So I think that that to me is is the the thing that 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 sort of sings universally that that can capture audiences. Yeah, I think it's emotion and and character as well. I don't know that it's necessarily kind of plot or specific sort of storylines. I think it's characters that we connect to in in some way. I know development execs often get sort of get crap for saying things like sympathetic character or whatnot. And I'm not, I don't believe in the sort of sympathetic character that like, you know, the likable characters. I think there needs to be something that you connect with in a character that you see on screen, that that you relate to them in some way or you feel for them in some way. They don't necessarily need to be a good person or a likable person, but there is something in them that you feel for them and want to go on the journey with them, whether that's an hour and a half movie or a 10 episodes over six seasons. I think it's got to be a character that you can can recognize. Yeah, that has, and that's an interesting question because actually I'm gonna provoke it a little in a second because I, I agree that there has to be some sense of belonging or identity or empathy that you know, you see their flaws and that almost endears them a little bit more. But talking about stories where, because this is timely, talking about stories where you may not necessarily like any of the characters, but you have to watch it. What do you think resonates about Succession so much? I knew that you were going to ask Succession. I knew (laughs) that was going to be the one. I think, I mean, let's, let's think about Kendall Roy and we open with Kendall Roy in, in the very first episode. And he thinks that he is going to inherit his father's company. He's, he's like prepared to get that crown handed down to him. And in that first episode, he doesn't. And that belief that that thing that he expected to get that you're, you know, that that's the thing that he wants, he doesn't get. And you sort of wreck there's, there, there is, I think inevitably, and an empathy to that you know we've all been in places where we expect the thing to be handed to us and it's yanked out from under our feet and I think it's that kind in that little human connection that we connect with him that we care for him that we want to see okay how is this guy who is absolutely completely unlikable I mean all of them are are monsters in their own way (laughs) 
Yeah, but I think it's about how they get set up within their world and you find ways to, to I guess, empathize with them or connect with them or understand at least where they're, they're coming from. And then you want to see how they get out of that situation. And I know from a psychological point of view, because it's really the bonfire of the narcissism, mm. pathological narcissism there, where it tells the story of generational trauma caused- Absolutely generational trauma. So there's lots of little groups of, let's say, people who have dealt with parents like that, who have been not in context that were like, you know, I'm waiting for these billions to be handed down to me. But like, I couldn't get five minutes of my father's attention. Absolutely. That, that resonates really deeply for many people. And we can talk about our theories on how it's going to end later. I have <laughs> I am so fascinated. Honestly, I think it's such a fascinating show. And, and it, the psychology of it is, is absolutely brilliant. There's a really great book that I've been sort of obsessed with lately called um, The Psychology of Storytelling. And it really delves into a lot of that of how do we connect with these really sort of classically unlikable characters who are really assholes and whatnot. And, and the writer of this book, whose name escapes me now, really talks about having that kind of connection with those characters within those situations. And exactly what you said, we, I certainly don't have parents from whom I can inherit millions, but I can relate to those moments of like, God, I wish I had a little bit more time with this person. Or it, you, you sort of understand those, those moments from, a, from your own perspective. And I think that that's the connection you make with these characters um, yeah. that makes you want to follow them on their journey. In Italian, they have a saying, which is, which means that it's the the situation that determines your behavior and your responses, right? Yep. So to be able to identify with someone and then see them go to such a dark place and, and you start asking like, what would I do? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you, I think that characters are on screen. If you can find a character on screen, that's a reflection of yourself. And then you start to question exactly what you said. What would I do in that situation? How would I respond? And I think that that's the thing. That's a part of the connection. That is the connection is you see yourself on screen and you're trying to understand their psychology and see how you would fit in within that, within that journey. Yeah. I have no idea how I would respond if I was Kendall Roy, but... <laughs> I think having too much money is a, a curse in and of itself. I would agree. So what do you think is the relationship between media, entertainment, and culture? Is it a chicken egg? Is it, you know, mutual? How, how does it work? I think that's such a difficult question to answer because I think in so many situations, it flips. Like they they go back and forth. At times you will have media and entertainment influencing culture. And then I think it happens vice versa. I just listened to a podcast recently that was all about kind of reality television. And it was talking about the Kardashians in, in particular and the massive influence they had on our culture. And And I think there's an argument to be made that they... That, that they sort of directed it in a certain in a certain way, certainly around um, body image and and plastic surgery and and fashion and things like that. So that's an influence that comes from the media side. I, I think there's also the the possibility for it to happen kind of the other way around. You know, we're in, for example, coming out of coming out of COVID, where everybody was sort of stuck in their house and and wanted some kind of escapism, I think you're going to see, you have seen a lot more stories with more lightness and kind of exploration of worlds around that. And I think that that is a, 
being influenced by what is happening kind of around us. So I think they're both possible. And I think it's a really interesting kind of relationship of how they push and pull one another. I don't believe that one is always leading. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up the Kardashians because I was actually having this conversation with my daughter the other day talking about how Kim Kardashian single-handedly re-articulated the female form and absolutely people are running to spend thousands of dollars to visibly alter their bodies in order to match that which is you know mind-boggling but they had a huge influence on the beauty canons that that we're currently living with and i think reality tv has also really for the worse set the tone with which people are willing to speak to each other because obviously what drives reality is discord and drama otherwise you're not going to watch it right and and part of us you know we're kind of like the romans in the coliseum like oh you know let's watch them drag each other and and rip each other to shreds but then the way they speak to each other on TV has been normalized now. And so how you're okay with speaking to someone on Twitter or that the first reaction is not, oh, maybe they considered it, or maybe they said it in this tone and you just go straight to the jugular. Straight to that, yeah. Yeah, that there's been sort of, unfortunately, I think Bravo has has lowered <laughs> the the level of discourse that we're having and, and the respect and consideration that we have in interacting with people that we don't know at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's not just reality television. I mean, you think about like the Barbie movie that's coming out later this year is already influence, influencing fashion. I mean, it's already had a, an effect on the fashion world and that movie hasn't even come out yet you also hear that in i mean like the way people speak and dialogue you know i i think of like gosh when how i met your mother was around everybody was doing the like legendary thing that neil patrick harris or going back to friends chandler's could i be more you know it's it just like his way is speaking i think that those are things that end up in our in our vernacular based on the the content that we are absorbing and and i think we're just sort of exposed to so much of it that it is we're going to absorb it by osmosis whether or not we're aware of it you know like i said the barbie movie is one example of how it's influenced fashion we can go all the way back to sex in the city as well and and the influence of fashion mm-hmm. from that series i think there's a it's not just reality television that's doing it though it is doing it in perhaps a bolder way yes loud certainly louder louder way exactly <laughs> exactly So to that point, are you noticing now in development any trends in stories, like what's being asked uh, to be put into production, what's being watched? Yes and no. I think inevitably that writers and and artists and and as well they should, should be writing stories that that speak to them, that, that inspire them. And I think that it's potentially dangerous for writers to be thinking about kind of the trends and and what is what's selling at the moment because i i think that that certainly like the bigger studios and the bigger players can often be quite reactive and things change really quickly so i think that writers need to find the stories that inspire them that are they're passionate about that they want to write and i do believe that that passion for whatever story it is you want to tell 
if, if you're doing it excellently, like it can rise to the top in spite of what all the commissioners are are asking for. I mean, the commissioners will have certainly in the UK the commissioner briefs. You can you can read them online on in terms of television. In terms of the streamers, it's you know genre is a thing that everybody's talking about: thrillers, rom coms, comedies, action. I think escapism is a big word that people are using, not necessarily in terms of like massive scope and spectacle, though I, I think that that does exist. I think romantic escapism is a thing that that people are excited about. I know as an exec, and this is something I've heard other financiers say too, is like, we've just come out of COVID. We're in slightly a bleak world right now. Like we want stuff that's going to make us happy, make us laugh. Right. So if I have like, a very bleak drama or like a fun poppy comedy, I'm probably going to read the fun poppy comedy first. That doesn't mean I'm not going to read the drama, but the one that's going to excite me first and foremost is going to be the, the comedy just because the world is a really bleak place right now and I need, need some laughter. But I think you see this also reflected in like, you know, look at, look at the Oscars this year. Everything Everywhere All at Once is such a mad kind of escapist, bonkers, over-the-top movie. I don't even want to know what that script looked like because I would not know what to do as, as a development executive, but it's so imaginative and kind of out there and 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 crazy and, and, and brilliant. And then you have a film like All Quiet on the Western Front, which is like could not be bleaker, could not be darker. <laughs> I remember, I mean, I walked out of my, my old boss was the exec on, on that film and I walked out of an early screening and I was just like, Oh my god! It like drinks like totally drink like I yeah I I it was it's so draining and yet so powerful and so moving and so necessary. I you know both of those things can exist. I think the question that I always ask myself when I when I read a script, and when I when I am talking to writers or talking about projects is like why now. Why, what is the point of it happening today? You know, what is the timeliness about that, that project? And I think that comes from a, not necessarily trends in story, but I think it's a reflection of, of the world we're in. You know, what is its reason to be? I think, you know, with All Quiet on the Western Front, that film was obviously put into production before the war in Ukraine came out, but it's a, it is a, a war story and about the sort of bleakness of war and, and the sort of the, you know, war is just a, a horrible, horrible thing. And just so ha that's quite a, a timeless theme, but it also happened to be really timely with when it got released and, and what it's saying about kind of the world we're in today. I'd argue that some other stories, like sometimes they get made and I'm just like, why now? You know, mm -hmm. what is it, what is it, what is it saying about the world today? And I think that's always a question that anybody needs to ask themselves in order to, to define the, I mean, from a purely practical business perspective, the financing to get it made, but right. also the, the audience for it as well. You know, the audience is going to react to what they see on screen and they're going to want subconsciously it to reflect something about the world they're in or their experience in the world. Yeah. And, you know, just also as an aside for people who don't know the production process, it can be 10 years before you get a project greenlit. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So like, I you know, people, when Get Out was made, everybody was like, oh, we need the next Get Out. We need the next Get Out. And I can imagine all these writers were like, oh yeah, I'm going to go write the next Get Out because that's a trend that everybody is doing. And 
I mean, have we seen another Get Out? Probably. I, I don't think we. I yeah. suppose his follow-up film was close to that. I made a film that that was had had some sort of echoes of that as well. But it's been it's been years. It's you know the from from the time something gets put into development to it being on screen can be five plus years. I've seen it as long as ten years. We were talking about Barbie earlier. I remember when Barbie was in development seven, eight years ago. I mean, these movies yeah. take a long time to get made. Well, even the Korean one, the Squid Games. Squid Game, yeah. It took the guy his entire life to get it produced. <laughs> Absolutely. Queen's Gambit or White Lotus. It's, you know, these things do take time to to find a home that's going to make it, that's going to be excited about it, to find that exec that is going to see it for, see something in it. Not every executive is going to see the thing that it could be, but you know, you've got to find your creative partner who is going to see that. That takes time to do, and then it takes time to get it right. 